Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Araqi Voices. This is your host, Hassan Haddad. Araqi Voices is a podcast that showcases Araqi perspectives and insights about current developments in our country. Araqi Voices is produced by 1001 Araqi Thoughts. Nearly 11 months ago, Araqis voted in the early parliamentary elections on October 10, 2021. Since our last episode of this podcast, the government formation process remained stalled after Muqtada Sadr forced the members of parliament representing his constituents to resign and the remaining parties attempted to form a government without him. This led to an insurrection of the Araqi parliament, followed days later by another one that led to a month-long sit-in and eventually physical violence leading to the deaths of tens of people on both sides of the conflict. To delve deeper into the subject, I am joined once again by the people who make this podcast possible, Hamad Al-Wa'ili, Ali Al-Mawlawi, and Hamza Haddad. Welcome once again, gentlemen. Thanks, Hassan. Thanks, Hassan. Thank you for having us. During the last episode, Ali, you introduced the idea of Za'ama, leadership, and Sadr attempting to rebrand himself as the political leader of Shia. This week, you published an article calling his attempt to rebrand himself and his movement as revolutionaries as a gambit. Where does Sadr stand now with his followers and with the wider Shia? Yeah, thanks, Hassan. So I think, first of all, it's important to take a bit of a step back. And I think now we have a lot of um, material in terms of understanding how Muqtada Sadr operates, how he decides to to act. And uh, one thing that's worth saying is that I think this characterization of him as this, you know, mercurial cleric is just not very helpful. I mean, you know, this idea that he's temperamental, he's difficult to second guess, no one really knows what he's up to and what he's trying to achieve. You know, I think if we look back at um, his actions over the past, you know, even five, six, seven years, um, you can start to uh, draw a picture of how he operates, um, what his goals are and so on. Um, and so one of the things that, you know, we should accept is that there is an internal logic to the way that he acts, right? Even if you consider that logic to be flawed, he still has a way of thinking, uh, a certain um, modus operandi, if you like, you know, a, a pattern of behavior. Um, and, you know, we saw this um, time and time again when he um, announces a withdrawal from politics, uh, a hibernation, if you like, or when he calls on uh, his supporters to to withdraw either from parliament or elsewhere. There tends to be quite a a predictable reaction after that happens. Um, And so I think that's the first step, is really to try to um, understand um, what Sadr's motivations are. And that kind of fits in with this concept of of Za'ama and what he's trying to achieve. All right, so unpack this for us. How can we understand what Sadr is calculating when he is announcing a withdrawal or retreat from politics? Well, so if you look at, um, let's just take, for example, the uh, couple of times where he uh, announced a a withdrawal. So the first was uh, when he called on his MPs to withdraw from parliament. And then the second was when um, he himself, uh, a few days ago, uh, announced that he uh, he would withdraw entirely from politics. Um, in both occasions, what you saw was an escalation after that withdrawal. So the idea that withdrawal means uh, de-escalation is not correct. Um, time and time again, what you see is um, an announcement that he will withdraw or that his supporters will withdraw. And then immediately or very quickly after, you'll see a, a massive escalation. Right. So we saw that after he called on his MPs to uh, withdraw from parliament, um, the next month they entered parliament um, by force. 
um, and uh, and occupied um, the, the building, and that was followed by a sit-in. You know, that's an escalation. Again, a few days ago, when he uh, announced that he was going to uh, entirely uh, withdraw himself um, from politics, the same day you saw his uh, followers uh, re-enter the green zone, occupy the government palace, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so, if we if we take a look at what he's doing and how he's trying to operate, what we can say is there are some useful functions. And when it comes to uh, why he's engaging in this sort of tactic, the first is it's almost like a face-saving mechanism. It sort of uh, limits reputational damage for him because, um, as we discussed in the, in the last episode, you know, za'ama or leadership is really important to him. His perception as not just a political leader but as a religious authority um, in many ways. And so, for example, if he spent seven, eight months trying to form a government and it's not moving anywhere, then this for him undermines his credibility. And so, at some point. His decision is going to be that I need to withdraw from this approach and take a different approach. That doesn't mean that he's not interested in, um, you know, dominating the government or having a, a primary role in it. But he just has come to the conclusion that that particular approach is not working for him. So that's the first sort of function of withdrawal. Um, the second, I would say, is it offers him sort of uh, plausible deniability. So if you take a look at, for example, um, his surrogate account, Saleh Muhammad al-Araqi, what does that allow him to do? It allows him to say things that are very insightful, um, often leading to violence, without people pinning it on him directly. Now, you could say, well, everyone knows it's him. Everyone knows that that account is linked to him. But in his mind, um, it's not him, is it? And, and whether you, you know, think it's a reasonable tactic or not, um, the fact is he's doing it as a way to kind of distance himself from um, you know, this sort of incitement that um, it's, it's really about protecting himself and... Um, and providing legal and political cover for him. So that's sort of my you know, understanding of, of withdrawal and retreat from politics. It's not de-escalation, it's actually escalation more often than not. Thank you very much, Ali, for those uh, valuable insights. Mohammed, if I can get you to talk to us a little bit about where Muqtada can go from here, given that since the violence on Monday uh, and the morning of Tuesday before he gave that speech on Tuesday afternoon. Would you be able to provide insights, given that he has not receded from politics, he only admonished his followers d- during that speech, where Muqtada can go from here? Um, thanks, Hassan. That's an important question. I mean, um, it's difficult to really predict uh, what he's going to do next. Um, yes, uh, there is some of his behavior that is by now predictable. But I think uh, his next steps uh, are not uh, very clear. And in general, the the next steps for the Iraqi political process is also not clear. Um, But one thing for me is sure, uh, regardless of what role he wants to play, I think he will still pursue the idea of Za'ama, the political um, and social uh, leadership of the Shia. Uh, It might take a different form. I saw people suggesting um, that he's going to call it a different name. For instance, in the past, it was a political leader, uh, maybe a, a social leader or a, a religious leader, but maybe now he will now become sort of like a, a popular leader. Uh, but regardless of how you name it, he is still going to be involved in politics. And even if he doesn't make his own statement, his proxy um, Muhammad Saleh al-Iraqi um, is going to do that for him 
And we saw that after he withdrew, he announced his withdrawal from the political process. Immediately after that, we saw at least two or three, if not four, statements by Mohammed Saleh al-Iraqi. So it doesn't really matter um, whether he is going to uh, not say anything himself or not. He's definitely not going to give up um, the leadership of at least his own political movement, not to mention striving for a different place amongst the Iraqi um, Shia community. Hamza, if I can get you to talk to us about where the other side goes from here. The coordination framework has been putting out speeches and tweets and statements. What are their potential next steps after the violence? I've been as surprised by the coordination framework's actions as I have been by Muqtada Sadr. And it starts all the way back when they allowed Muqtada Sadr to resign his MPs. Um, We've seen in the past when Sadr threatens with with such a thing, he usually backtracks. But when it came with regards to his MPs, they replaced his MPs with theirs. So there's there's no way for Sadr to backtrack anymore. And as we saw, this did at the end anger him, which caused all of this in late July and all the way throughout August. And you can kind of, you know, maybe forgive them and say they're allowed to believe that he was going to truly step away from politics. But they did it again after things calmed down when he asked his when Sadr asked his followers to withdraw from the green zone, it took moments for the coordination framework to put out a statement and said, "Okay, let's get back to business. Parliament has to meet. We have to form this government." And despite Sadr, you know, this defeated figure coming out on TV, straight away his proxy account comes out and says, "You're not forming a government without us." And it was and it and it was just it was it was just shocking that they haven't learned their lesson and. It leads us into this uh, to this unknown. Thank you for that. I, for one, am equally surprised that there are now all sorts of legal and constitutional somersaults being suggested to get his MPs back in uh, after they willingly resigned and their resignation was accepted and new MPs were sworn in. Looking at government formation, Ali, are you able to see a government being formed without MPs from the Sadrist bloc there to vote yes for them and give them that uh, stamp of approval and that legitimacy in order for them to carry on with their task? I think it's going to be very difficult for the coordination framework to, to form a government sort of unilaterally. Um, I mean, if you just look at their numbers, to, to my count, there are only about 100 MPs if you count just the core uh, members of the, the framework. Um, so, you know, they're well short of the, the 220 that they need um, to first hold a session and then to get the, the, the president and then the government uh, elected. Um, and I think the other thing is that, you know, Sadr has proved, you know, that he can be extremely disruptive, that he can uh, stall the process altogether. And, and, you know, entirely derail it, actually. Uh, and so there's no reason why he wouldn't try to do that again um, if the framework, you know, tried to move ahead with uh, Sudanese nomination. Um, and as I said, I mean, any announcement about withdrawal from politics by Sadr is more an indication of escalation rather than de- de-escalation. The other aspect worth thinking about is what happens to the other partners 
Um, so what about the Sunnis and the Kurds? Um, you know, what I thought was very interesting was, if you remember when the Sadris first entered um, Parliament, I think it was on the 27th of July, that was the initial um, incursion followed by a withdrawal. The following day, the Sovereignty Alliance, which is, as you know, led by Khanjar and Halbusi, they issued a statement saying that they would not attend a session of Parliament um, that involved the formation of a government unless the framework um, were to um, uh, sit down with them and uh, meet all of their demands and, and, and come up with a signed agreement between them. And they also said that the KDP had a similar position. So I thought it was really interesting because what it indicated was that, you know, despite the fact that, you know, Halbusi moved forward with um, accepting the resignations of Sadrus MPs, there was really no intention of um, allowing the framework to uh, move ahead with the government formation process. And um, for me, there's no indication that they have any interest, either Halbusi, Khanjar or Barzani, of allowing um, the a framework to, again, move ahead and try to form um, this next government uh, without, number one, meeting uh, many of their demands and, number two, getting somehow the Sadrist on board um, in an agreement. Given that, Mohammed, does that mean the tripartite alliance is still alive and kicking? Or is this just politics as usual and the KDP and the Sovereignty Alliance trying to get more concessions out of the framework than they normally would get if Sadr had stayed in parliament. So I think the latter is, is, is more true because the three-way alliance from the beginning actually um, wasn't really coherent enough. And uh, the Kurds and the Sunnis not saying anything doesn't necessarily mean they are in agreement. Um, it's just that um, I think the situation is way too complicated actually to make any demands. And I think they're waiting to see what's going to happen. And that's more likely than having really uh, a plan uh, or sort of like a, um, a coordination among themselves in order to put pressure on, on the coordination framework. Um, because I think um, what we have seen in the last few days was a very high level of uncertainty in Iraq. And uh, I think what they are waiting for is more... Um, what is going to happen among the Shia themselves first before they make any uh, demands. Thank you very much, Mohammed. Hamza, I wanted to ask you about the violence that took place. Um, I, I have been reading the analysis and the tweets by many. You can tell that many wanted the violence that took place on the 29th of August in the hope that it would turn into a full-blown civil war between the Shia. The fact that that didn't happen, will these actors stop hoping or trying to ignite one? Well, it's important to note that no one from inside Iraq was hoping for a civil war to happen, um, even outside the Shia. Um, everyone's kind of uh, realized what happens in Baghdad in the south will affect the west and the north part of the country. Um, that's why you had Kurdish leaders uh, calling for calm and, and inviting them to Kurdistan to have dialogue, as well as from Sunni political leaders calling for calm as well. And so I don't think any of these calls or hopes for clashes in Baghdad were coming from Iraqis, and that's important to make note of. Those that were calling for them, they obviously don't have Iraq's interests at heart because a Shia civil war would be very dangerous. 
it's not going to be something like the Kurdish civil war in the 90s where it ended after four years because they were able to, you know, nicely carve up Kurdistan into two halves, the yellow and the green, the Sorani and the, the Badini. It's it's not like that in, in southern Iraq. Uh, the neighborhoods are not divided so cleanly. There's no way to divide the Shia amongst tribal or ethnic lines. So if we did enter a Shia civil war, it would be very bloody and would take years before we would see an end in sight. So anyone who was hoping for that or painting it black and white because one side is supported by Iran or one might criticize Iran in public, it's naive of them and they clearly are not going to be affected by it personally. So anyone who's, who is pushing for such a rhetoric, um, you know, I would just ignore them. Thank you, Hamza, for those valuable insights. I agree people should not be listening to these actors. However, Ali, if I can get you to comment, we do know that Muqtada uh, receives and reads uh, some of these tweets and some of these reports, and it gives him a sense of legitimacy that the West, the Arab states are backing him, given that the other side is painted with a broad pro-Iran or Iran-backed brush. Listen, I think, first of all, the idea that civil war is an inevitability is just not true. I mean, it's not a foregone conclusion that, you know, these uh, Shia groups are going to descend into um, all that violence. You know, if you keep talking about it, and if you keep trying to encourage it and, and create tensions uh, between these various parties, then it can end up as a um, self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, and, and so what I'm saying is that there are ways to avert this um, violence. And, and ultimately, it's about um, what Iraqis and with their agency can, can do to avert uh, this violence. And we, and we saw what happened um, with that one day of violence. There were Iraqis who intervened um, in this crisis. And I think we know who um, the primary actors were um, uh, to avoid you know, um, this descent into all out um, uh, bloody violence. Um, so that's the first point. The second point to say is, you know, does Muqtada Salar have uh, legitimacy because of his anti-Iranian stance? Um, I mean, look, what we saw over the past month is that um, Sadr can say what he likes in terms of his aspirations for reform and, and driving out Iran and so on and so forth. But ultimately, and this is what I tried to get at with the piece that I wrote, he has this difficulty of winning over people outside of his core um, constituency. Um, people just don't trust him and he has a track record, um, a very violent track record um, that just, you know, just acts as a, a barrier for, for other people to, to join um, anything that he, he tries to do. Um, and so even if he does have a, an anti-Iranian stance that others um, are also aligned with, um, that doesn't mean that he, you know, he has this ability to, to lead, a, you know, a popular revolution or popular movement uh, against Iran. Um, or its allies um, in, in the country. And yeah, as I said, I mean, memory is, a, is something that Sadr really underestimated. Sadr, for many years, was a key Iranian ally, um, and there's no reason why he couldn't be in the future. Um, and I just think that uh, civil war is not inevitable. Um, it can be prevented, and, and we can um, you know, get to a point where you know, the threat of civil war is no longer you know, something that you know, we need to be eminently worried about. Thank you, Ali. I think those are two very important points. 
Muhammad, given the uh, importance of the issue of a potential Shi'i civil war, can I get your thoughts on it, please? Um, yeah, of course, I agree with uh, Ali and Hamza on this point. Um, social psychology, I mean, has proven that uh, um, we are impacted by the stories we tell ourselves. And uh, if the Shia community um, keeps hearing and believing the narrative that uh, there could be civil war and that uh, the potential for it is always there, and uh, then, of course, uh, you have these problems in, in the political process, etc., um, it's possible that we are pushed again towards it. But uh, we should not forget that, uh, as Hamza keeps saying as well, that uh, we have our own um, agency. And if potential is there, then it, it doesn't mean it should happen or that we should actually follow a path of, of violence. And I think um, the world um, saw that it is going to be very ugly if that would happen. And I want to remind the Western analysts uh, who basically sort of push more or less towards um, such solution for their problems and not Iraq's problems. I, I want to remind them that Muqtada al-Sadr, for instance, threatened uh, to capture uh, oil fields. And I want to ask them, is it actually wise for him to do this, given that we have the Ukraine-Russia crisis, which impacts the energy markets uh, in a very bad way, and which has more or less caused uh, uh, an economic crisis around the world, not only um, in Europe. So do they really want that? Um, I think these calls and this, this sort of overanalyzing the, the issue of civil war amongst the Shia um, is a dumb idea. And uh, it's going to cause a lot of problems, not only for Iraq, but also globally. Thank you, Mohammed. I completely agree. When it comes to the international community, I, for one, was deafened by the silence in response to the consecutive insurrections of the parliament and the subsequent uproar at the mere attempt to protest outside the gates of the judiciary. Hamza, why is there a double standard when the parliament is the so-called house of the people and the main pillar of Iraq's post-2003 system? I think... Some of it has to do with the fact how Iraqis have treated their parliament. Uh, the Sadras have stormed it before, back in 2016. It's not, you know, it's not an institution that's built a great reputation for itself. It's had poor leadership. Its own Speaker of Parliament didn't defend it. So I'm not surprised that others did not defend it uh, when the Sadras protesters stormed it. Whereas when it came to the judiciary, the head of the judiciary came out very bluntly saying, don't you dare, and I'm suspending all court activities across the country. Um, and you saw, as a result, others come out, such as the United Nations Assistance Mission in Iraq, call out the protesters to, to respect the judiciary. Uh, that's one point that needs to be taken into consideration. The other, as I've heard from other um, diplomats, is the fact that, you know, a lot of them have their missions based in the international zone themselves. And so if they come out very bluntly, then they could be a target next. So they have their own interests to follow. But I think it's a bit, it's those two factors are what drive what's being said with regards to which institutions being targeted. Yeah, I mean, just to add to what Hamza said, I think there's also, a, you know, a convenience to what happened with regards to the 
occupation of parliament because there's no interest really in seeing the coordination framework form and lead the government, um, especially in the absence of, of the Southerists. And uh, on top of that, many would favour a uh, continuation of this uh, current Carvin government, even if it's uh, just a caretaker government. I think that's more favourable than, than seeing uh, you know, a fully-fledged uh, coordination framework-led uh, government. And so that, that, for me, was also part of the calculation. Um, you know, um, when it comes to the, ju- the judiciary, uh, the potential attack on the judiciary um, would have been a lot more destabilising for the country as a whole. Because, you know, it would have just completely collapsed the state if we had no judiciary. Uh, would have created a massive constitutional vacuum. I, I agree, Ali. But again, I put the emphasis on Iraqis and the agency they have themselves. If they uh, respect themselves, if they respect their institutions and they defend them, then I think others will follow with that. And we just didn't see that with parliament under Halbusi's leadership. And we also didn't see it with the uh, with the Republican palace as well with uh, under Kavami. And these are two weak Iraqi leaders that run the executive and the legislative branch of government. These are very interesting points, thanks to you both. As I said at the beginning, uh, it's been 11 months and no government has been formed, and it seems like there's no end in sight to this crisis. I want insights from all three of you on what are some steps that can be taken to solve these issues and form a government to serve the people. I remember in the last um, episode, we talked about uh, the fact that let all these political um, parties and factions engage in dialogue instead of it becoming violent. Um, sadly, it has become violent, uh, even if it's just for one day. But uh, nevertheless, I think it's still important to talk and uh, not let it actually uh, go down to this level that we are at now. Um, in Iraq, nothing has been easy. And uh, despite the fact that we had uh, um, lots of problems and uh, the system is not ideal and the solutions are, are, are not ideal and they're not actually serving the people, uh, mostly um, the interests of the parties are taken into account. But nevertheless, um, there was um, a peaceful transition of power and uh, we should strive to go back to this and uh, let that remain the norm instead of going down to, to the level where clashes happen. Um, and this goes back to what we have always said in the past. It's so important that people go and vote and it's so important that we appreciate actually the peaceful transition of power. It's not perfect. Uh, Iraq's problems are not going to be resolved with uh, more participation in elections. And uh, But nevertheless... Um, it's a nascent democracy. Uh, we need to keep at least the, the lowest minimum uh, standard of, of, of democratic practices in place and uh, not forget about the importance. I hope that Iraqis actually learn from what happened a few days ago and uh, reappreciate the fact that despite everything that there was going on, they still have that, that peaceful transition of power. I agree with you, Mohammed, because, you know, it wasn't too long ago when, you know, any time peaceful transfer, transfer of power was celebrated in Iraq, there'd be many commentators saying, you know, what, what does this mean for the Iraqi people? It, this is a very low bar. But we're seeing, you know, the past 11 months, what this low bar means for how far, how much it means to Iraqi stability. 
that we just descend into further chaos if we don't hold on to the bare minimum of democratic uh, norms that you've alluded to. Yeah, I mean, I'd really just add that as frustrating as it is to have our politics driven by consensus, um, I, I do think the lessons of the past um, eight, nine months have shown that it's better to have everyone uh, in the tent than, than, than out. Um, and yes, that has a negative impact on the prospects of reform and, and, and improving the way that this country functions. And, um, and we all have aspirations about what this country can become. But at the same time, you know, we're in uncharted territory, I'd say. And uh, at this point, it's really about just trying to get back to a, a, a point where we can, you know, have a functioning country that um, is not uh, on the verge of, of, of collapse. And, you know, it's very, very frustrating where we are now. Um, you know, you can look back at points in time uh, in our recent history where we were a lot more hopeful that change could happen. And the fact that the, we, we are where we are now does not mean that we should just, you know, give up. Thank you, Ali. I agree. In the short term, it's difficult to have hope, but uh, I think all of us remain uh, much more optimistic about the medium and long term uh, of Iraq's future. Thank you very much for joining us, gentlemen. That's it for this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify to receive notifications about a new episode from Arapi Voices. Until next time, take care.